episode when a stranger thanks Kyle Carpenter for his service as a U.S. Marine, his pretty automatic reply is, you are worth it. Enlisting in the Marine Corps in 2009, he served for more than a year in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, as part of Operation Enduring Freedom, when he and his fellow Marines came under attack. And in an act of extraordinary sacrifice, he threw himself on a grenade to save those around him. Regaining consciousness briefly and realizing the extent of his injuries, he drifted back into unconsciousness just a few moments later and was pretty sure he was taking his last breath. And thankfully, he was wrong. Kyle woke up five weeks later at Walter Reed Hospital, where he would learn that large parts of his face and his head and his right arm had been destroyed and needed to be largely reconstructed, and he would have a long road to recovery. Still, he was alive and grateful. Now the youngest living recipient of the U.S. military's highest honor, the Medal of Honor, in today's conversation, Kyle shares this extraordinary journey, his deep sense of service, his love of people, family, his fellow Marines, what happened on that fateful day, along with his years-long road to rehabilitation, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, his reclamation of life and hope and the legacy of kindness and service that he's working to build, along with his desire to help inspire people to really embrace life. Much of this is also detailed in a deeply moving memoir called You Are Worth It. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. 
so you're coming up as a kid. I mean, what kind of kid are you? What are you? <laughs> what what moves you? What excites you as a kid? A challenge, yeah. uh, just like know, broadly, from sitting in the recliner with my dad way early on, trying to master blowing bubbles with gum, to making the biggest and best ramps I could construct in the front yard and driveway with whatever we had in the garage, to sports played a huge part in my life growing up. Just all of those things, I think, in the pursuit of perfection and always striving for bigger and better potential, uh, not really for external factors, but just for myself and, and taking on that challenge and then trying to accomplish that and then, you know, therefore showing and teaching myself either how banged up I could get from from uh, not doing those ramps so smoothly, um, but just, um, I think, just trying to prove to myself and overcome, you know, even if it's something simple, uh, one thing at a time growing up. Yeah. Do you have a sense for where that came from, like from your parents, or was it just something that was more internal to you? Uh, I think more internal. But with that said, I think it was very much nurtured by my parents being extremely supportive, encouraging me to, you know, go out and be ambitious and do good at sports. And, um, you know, like all good parents, have good grades and all of these things that um, contributed to who I am and, and making me better one step at a time. Yeah. So, so as you're coming up and you, you're in high school and you're starting to think about what's coming next in, in your mind, what are, what are the, what are the opportunities? What are the possibilities that you're seriously weighing? So I didn't have, you know, I can't say my plan to join the military following high school. You know, I wasn't a hundred percent, you know, I'm going to do this no matter what before graduating high school uh, you know, really thinking about that next step and then uh, starting to brainstorm on the military, multiple different options or paths I could have taken with my life. You know, when I really started thinking about the military, going back to growing up and the challenges, big or small, the military was appealing to me because I had never been pushed to the point of wanting to quit or I had never been pushed to a limit where I truly had to look down deep inside myself. And that, along with wanting to do something bigger than myself or bigger than any one individual and just contributing myself and my life and now my body to something so much greater, you know, when all of those pieces kind of in my head fell in line, I knew that the military was my calling, and with my first point of wanting to be pushed and wanting as much of a challenge as I could get, I knew after going to multiple recruiters and uh, talking to veterans, doing as much research as I could, I knew that the Marine Corps you know, was the path for me, and it would give me what I was searching for. Yeah. When, when you make that decision, when it sort of gets clear in your mind— at some point, you share this with your parents who are, you know, as you shared, um, you don't come from a sort of a military family where, you know, this is just sort of, 
not necessarily expected, but completely kind of commonplace within the family. Mm-hmm. Curious what, what that conversation was like. It was extremely difficult, and it was weeks, you know, arguably months of difficult discussions, seeing you know, my mom very visibly upset, you know, waking up in the morning and being able to tell that she had been crying through the night. That was extremely difficult for me. But, you know, after multiple talks and just trying to convey that I wasn't doing it on a whim, I wasn't doing it for any external factors, you know, it's what I truly wanted and needed to do with my life. And I don't think anyone that joins, especially if you get injured, I don't think anyone can confidently say, oh, yeah, I know what I'm getting into. So I couldn't say, you know, I'm not going to be put in harm's way. Everything's going to be fine. And I didn't make any false promises. But I wanted them to know that no matter what, I couldn't be talked out of it. But I talked through that process with them because even though I was old enough to just run off and join, never to be seen or heard from again, you know, I wanted their blessing, and I wanted them to be behind me 100%, which they always have been, always are, and always will continue to be. But, you know, I wanted them to say, okay, we're on board, and we're joining with you. And uh, they did that, and um, they have been by my side since the second I joined and the second I woke up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So this would have been when you're making the decision and making the commitment, late 2009-ish, mid-2009? Correct. Right? If we zoom the lens out a bit, so at that, at that point, we're eight years post 9-11. What's, what was your understanding of what was going on with our military and where they were deployed, and also whether you would or wouldn't actually be deployed or, or be in harm's way when you, when you said, okay, this is what I want to do? Right. Uh, So just for clarification, I kind of jumped the gun. Uh, It was late 2008, but I went to boot camp March of 2009. Cool. Well, I think, obviously I knew what was going on. You could turn on the news and see that. Uh, And because we knew what was going on and information is so readily accessible, uh, I think that was the thing that made it so difficult for my parents knowing that we were in two conflicts on two different fronts, um, two possibilities of deployments, two possibilities of being injured or killed. And honestly, that is not something that really was a factor or came into account with me wanting to do it or not. And, you know, like I said, I don't think anybody can comprehend or really know what's coming, especially to think, oh, if I join right now, I might be dead in a few months or a couple years. So that's very surreal to to think about that. Uh, obviously, that is an option, and I knew that. But I think my drive and my wanting to not only serve, but like I said, devote and commit my life and my path to a purpose greater than myself. That overpowered any thoughts of 
potentially being injured or killed. Um, you know, but uh, this sheds light on how not only difficult it can be for military families when their loved ones join and when they deploy, um, you know, but to really think about, you know, I was the driven one. I was wanting to join the Marine Corps and go off and do great things. But they not only had to accept that I was joining, that I was potentially and probably going to be put in harm's way, but that they were just going to have to sit at home and live by the phone and hopefully never get that phone call. So, you know, I'm so just completely forever thankful and grateful that, you know, no matter how the chips fell and turned out, um, that they have been by my side ever, ever since because uh, <laughs> clearly it's been a, a, a difficult journey, a beautiful but very difficult journey. Yeah. So you end up um, joining, you're 19 years old? Correct. When you enter? Spend about seven months prepping to head out, and then you find yourself in boot camp. In so that would have been like mid late two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like for you? Because <laughs> there are a lot of stories, especially about like yeah. for, for, the, for the Marines. <laughs> uh, boot camp was uh, a wild ride for sure. Um, it was extremely difficult. But it was amazing because, you know, every day getting woken up at 4, 4.30 a.m., you know, you're, you're screamed at, you're, um, uh, you are kind of beat down, not literally, but just, you know, torn down and torn down every day, and you're pushed to your mental physical and emotional limit. So as hard as it was, it was amazing too because I was finally getting that that feel deep down inside that not only am I proud of myself, you know, wow, I really did this, I'm really doing this, but at the same time, it was fulfilling that want and that need to be just pushed to my limits or what I thought or knew were my my limits up until that point. But, you know, boot camp is amazing. Uh, It started off uh, very scary because even before you get to the gate of Paris Island, you know, you meet up at the local recruiting station there in Columbia, South Carolina. Mostly everyone's coming from all over this half of the country, other half, uh, we'll go to Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. But once you get to that recruiting station, it might be five of you, it might be 15, depending on the the numbers at that time that the Marine Corps needs. You're roughly a mile or so outside of the gate. This bus driver, who I hope he didn't get pleasure out of busing <laughs> kids on a Ferris Island, but you know, you're approaching the gate, and he says, put your head in between your legs. You're thinking like, okay, well, this... It's not what I was expecting. You know, come to find out, there's only one little windy road on and off Paris Island through the swamps. So if you do get to boot camp and you go crazy or you want to run away, you don't really know the way out. 
And uh, so that's the start of it. And then you get to the building, the receiving building, and the van door is ripped open by one of the scariest human beings I've ever seen in my life. And boot camp starts. And even though you all have different haircuts, you haven't got your uniforms yet, you know, you're straight from the civilian world. You know nothing about the Marine Corps. There's a famous yellow footprint. And they're painted on the ground. And you get out of that van. And even though you have no idea what you're doing, you stand on those yellow footprints and you're forced for the first time in your life to get in a structured military formation. And from that moment on, you're not only taught how to be a Marine, how to wear the uniforms, how to, your, how to carry yourself like a Marine, but a crucial aspect, I believe, in my molding by boot camp, by my drill instructors to make me into the Marine that I am today, that I was in Afghanistan and while I was you know, in and also recovering uh, every single day, day in and day out, you're taught stories and uh, of uh, Marines that have come before you, stories of courage, stories of sacrifice, stories, you know, that are almost unbelievable. You know, the Marines in World War II, you're told, hey, you're probably not even going to make it to the beach to even try to make it onto the beach and survive. And if you do make it to the beach, you might have 10 to 20 seconds before you're killed. To hear that as a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old, and they still did it. They still charged forward knowing the consequences or what could be the consequences. You know, that the Marines that cover grenades for their fellow Marines in Vietnam, Korea, you know, all of these amazing things and what makes the Marine Corps our legacy and our history and traditions. So to hear those day in and day out and, you know, at the very end of boot camp when you do what's called the crucible, a, a belief 54-hour culminating event, everything you've learned in the 13 weeks of boot camp up until that point. And you have to complete the crucible in order to earn your Eagle Globe and Anchor, which you hike back from the crucible, you haven't slept in three days, you haven't eaten really anything, you're completely miserable, probably bleeding from somewhere in pain, and the sun's coming up after you hike all the way through the night back to back to the barracks, and you're out on the parade deck, and the Iwo Jima Memorial is behind you, the sun's coming up, and they put the Eagle Globe and Anchor in your left hand, and they shake your right hand, and they say, well done, you know, Marine. And no one's not crying, and it's just, you know, you did it. Uh, but through that crucible, you know, all of these obstacles, I think maybe 22 or s something like that, obstacles, after every one, you know, you're beat down and broken a little more, a little more, and in that low point, every stop along the way is a different citation in the story of a Medal of Honor recipient. And I just remember being so, you know, locked in and just thinking, like, those Marines were, like, superhuman. I mean, how does one do something like that? Or, or you know, thoughts of, wow, I mean, I don't know if I can, but I hope. When my time comes, if I'm ever called upon to step up for my fellow Marines, you know, I hope I can do it.
as honorable and as courageous as they did it. And so that was really the, you know, along with my parents raising me well, loving me, and giving me the tools to succeed, you know, that really started my foundation and started to mold me like they do everyone, you know, all Marines. Yeah. So you go from there, you're, you are now a, a Marine, and then it's time to leave boot camp and open yourself up to very likely being deployed. How long does it take for that to actually happen? Uh, that's a great question. And after boot camp, the Marine Corps kind of split up. If you're infantry, you go to school of infantry. Everyone else goes to a few weeks of kind of an overview type infantry course, and then they go to their specific job school. If you're a radio operator, you go to that school, aircraft mechanic, so on and so forth. I went to almost two and a half months of SOI, School of Infantry. And then after that, right after graduation, Camp Lejeune, which is where myself and my unit were stationed in North Carolina on the coast, Camp Geiger, where School of Infantry takes place is just a few miles down the road. So they they take the entire SOI class and they split you up, say two or three different Marine Corps infantry units. And they say, okay, they read off these names. Hey, you're going to 3-6, you're going to 2-9, split up. You get on the bus and you go straight to the barracks where you, uh, I'll say unfortunately, as the new guy and straight out of boot camp, you meet the lovely platoon who mine had just got back from Iraq. We open the door to the barracks. I'm thinking, okay, you know, we get off the bus, make it to the barracks. There's not many guys standing outside. You know, where is everyone? Okay, well, at least maybe they're gone for a few hours, and then we'll wait and get destroyed later on this afternoon. They were all lining the halls and waiting on the inside of the barracks uh, when we opened the doors to give us our welcome. But... uh You know, that was tough as well. You have to earn your place. But at the same time, it was interesting because at the end of the day, like a good Marine would, as your fire team leaders who are in charge of a few Marines, and then you have your squad leaders who are in charge of three fire teams. And a fire team is about four, and there's so 12 Marines in a squad. So, you you know, you have this chain of command. But at the end of the day, you can tell they sit you down, they talk to you, hey, this is why we are hard on you. You know, you need to learn your nine line, which is what you call in by radio to give the nine lines of information it takes to spin up a medevac bird to come get a casualty. You're sitting there in the barracks hallway, taking on and off tourniquets, learning how to apply those. And just these courses that they were hard on you for, but they also respected you because... You didn't have to be there. You didn't have to raise your right hand. And they knew that when it was time to deploy, we would, you know, be having their back just as much as they had ours. So tough, but mutual respect. Just a few weeks after I got to the fleet and assigned to my unit, we went on our first deployment, which was not a combat deployment. It was a three-month deployment on a Navy ship down through the Caribbean. Some of our unit got off in the Dominican Republic to help train their forces, while the rest of us went down to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And this is early October of 2009. So we got back from that. Actually, when we were on the way back from that, we were all huddled around in the bowels of this Navy ship looking at this little TV with a faint and struggling cable signal. 
and we were watching President Obama at the time, and we were waiting to see essentially if he gave a thumbs up or thumbs down to send a significant troop surge into Afghanistan. And, you know, sitting there, all the guys knowing that if he approved, gave the thumbs up, we would be one of the first combat units in line into southern Afghanistan to go fight the Taliban. He gave the thumbs up. And so cruising back through the Caribbean Ocean on that ship, we knew that in six, seven, eight months, you know, we were going to be boots on the ground in Afghanistan. So that, you know, we got back, I believe Christmas Eve, we got back, we had a week or two of leave to go home with family for the holidays. But we knew that when we came back to Camp Lejeune, reunited as a unit, that we were going to be fully immersed into what's called a workup. And a workup is something you start, you know, it could be, you know, say, because uh, like some of my buddies from School of Infantry, they got um, put and assigned to 3-6. So the second they hit the fleet, instead of me and my two nine guys going on this three-month float, they were the first ones in line to go to Afghanistan. So a guy that I was with, he slept on the bunk above me in School of Infantry. He was the first casualty in 3-6. You know, he had been out of boot camp just a few months before he was killed in Afghanistan. So it all depends on your unit and your timeline to ship out. But 2-9, we didn't leave until July of 2010. And so for seven months, we trained day in, day out, sun up to sundown, and all the time at night to get not only trained up individually, to get as efficient as possible on our weapon systems, to learn those medical life-saving techniques, um, to learn how to talk on the radio. But also, with seven months of intense training together, no, it wasn't real combat, but it helped us become more cohesive as a unit. So when we got over there, we were operating as comfortably and efficiently as we possibly could. And so, uh, you know... Following that workup, July of 2010, you know, for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, you you get told back and forth, okay, we're leaving second week of July. All right, now it's August 1st. And really until probably for security reasons, so no one knows our movements, um, but also, you know, just the probably insane logistics to get an entire battalion of Marines over to Afghanistan you know, it was a 10-day journey, multiple bases, multiple types of aircraft. Uh, you know, it, you don't really know until it gets much closer. So we got word uh, specifically exactly when we were leaving. And I gave my mom a hug. And I eerily got on the bus thinking, you know, is that going to be the last time I ever hug my mom? And I remember looking out the window of the bus, and I didn't know if I regretted doing that because of how much it tore me up to see just such a look of despair on her face, you know, but also to know that I actually might not come back. You know, of course, I wanted to see her for the last time or what could have been the last time. 
But yeah, we got on those buses, and 10 days later, I was sitting in the back of a helicopter getting handed belts of machine gun ammo on the very last leg of our journey and being told that we were going to take contact the second we touched the ground, probably before when we were still in the air. So that was extremely surreal to, I think, for finally to everything to finally be happening. But also just to be told, like, it's guaranteed we're going to, we're not even going to touch the ground and we're going to be under fire. And so that coupled with, I vividly remember the back of the helicopter was open because there has to be a door gunner back there in combat environments. And uh, I remember looking out the back and just seeing different shades of green and patches of farmland. And I remember thinking, you know, am I going to get hit or get shot in that field or that canal? Am I going to bleed out in that tree line? And it wasn't a crippling fear or anything. It was just, I think everything was just so surreal, you know, just trying to, as best as I could in that moment, process it all. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all 
in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So once you're on the ground... What was the sort of the, the early mission for you? What was, what was your day-to-day like for the first part? Because we were one of the first units in, you know, we relieved 3-6, uh, the unit that my buddy got killed in, unfortunately. Uh, but 3-6 was the first ones into that area of operation in a very, very, very long time, pretty much since the Soviets. And, uh, and this, we're talking about Afghanistan. Correct. Right. In a, in a uh, farmland area called Marja. And because we were one of the first units in, that kind of dictates your mission. You know, if you're there years after there's been a significant presence that's already created stability in the region, help build schools, help dig wells, pave roads. Yeah, that that makes the mission change because at that point you're kind of holding ground and just keeping the local safe and holding that stability. But if you're one of the first ones in, it's uh, you know every every job, every branch, everyone has an extremely important job, and we all raised our right hand to give up to our lives if our country called upon it. But if you're one of the first ones in. It's more of the, you're taking casualties, you don't have a shower for seven months, you know, you're way out behind enemy lines and territory to where only helicopters can get to you. So essentially our mission was every day go on patrol and pick a fight with the enemy and draw them out and try to eliminate them or just push them out and just continue to push out and push out. Therefore, months later, years later, units and deployments later, you know, you have to create a stable region where the people aren't scared of the repercussions of wanting to read a book, to go to school, to have freedom of speech. You know, if the local population is so terrified of the Taliban and so oppressed, it's going to make your mission so much harder to 
you know, create that stable environment. So we had to go in and just fight for seven months and try to survive. Yeah. We were living at a, not a mud hut, but a mud compound. And that was our patrol base. That's where we lived and operated out of for the whole deployment. Uh, it was just me and my platoon. You know, we started out going over as a whole unit. But once we got into Afghanistan, all the platoons throughout 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, our unit split up to take a platoon is roughly 60 Marines. So you had multiple groups of 60 Marines spreading out over you know, square miles of an area of operation. We were at a mud compound known as Patrol Base Beatley. And our 60 Marines were broken down into four squads. Every, every day, we pushed out an early morning patrol, a late morning to early afternoon patrol, late afternoon patrol, and a night patrol. And we did that, dispersed like that, so you always kind of have a Marine presence outside the wire. You want to not only show the enemy that you're not scared, you're not backing down, but you want to show the local population that you truly are there, not only for them, but their well-being. And you're really trying and giving an effort and always giving that presence to uh, hopefully assist in not only making them comfortable enough to trust and help you, you know, like I said, um, let the enemy know that you're not backing down and that you know, you're here because they are evil people and um, these people deserve better. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, how the locals feel about their relationship with the Taliban. What was the dynamic between you and them? The local population. Yeah, because it's a, it's a, it's got to be this really weird blend of they're sort of caught between two worlds to a certain yes, extent. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so at least for when we were there, it was very tough. You know and understand that the vast majority of the population wants to help you. But the Taliban, they wear civilian clothes. They all have beards like every male over there. They will salute you and shake your hand one day. The next day, you'll have a Marine get shot. You find the same guy. You test his hands and he lights up for gunshot residue or um, explosive material. And so it's so easily to not only blend, but to shoot at us, to plan an IED. And then you know, after you hit one of us, throw your rifle down or bury it in a field really quick. And, you know, that wasn't me. I wasn't shooting at you. Um, I was shooting at the Taliban for you to try to help protect my family. And, you know, they know the ways of, of what to say and around everything. So it just makes a very challenging environment when you are really trying out that local population, but they're so terrified of the repercussions. I mean, you know, people need to understand that 
uh, they don't really care, have any regard for human life. I talk about this in the book, uh, two stories actually. One, uh, we are on a patrol, my squad and I. We are heading towards the Eastern Village, and the Eastern Village was bad news. Now, every single day, no matter where we patrolled over there for our entire deployment, it was never a matter of, I wonder if we're going to get shot at today. It was just a matter of when. But certain areas we went to, the fighting was much more intense. And we're in this firefight with the Eastern Village. We're not too far away. But what the Taliban will do is, you know, they will punch out crawl holes or little doorways that they can run through within the walls of compounds. And then they'll punch out barrel holes in the walls. So, I mean, pretty much they can sit there and shoot at you all day long and never expose themselves. And so we're getting shot at, we're getting shot at. And finally, I see dust kicking up from where these rounds are coming from. And the guy is kind of blindly shooting and taking pop shots out of a doorway. I see this dust kick up, and I tell my lieutenant, hey, you know, I, I see where the guy's coming from. I'm seeing his AK kick up this dust. When he pops back out, Obviously, so none of us get killed. You know, we're not proactively doing anything over there. We're waiting for them to try to kill us. And so I told my lieutenant, hey, you know, I'm going to shoot this guy when he pops back out in the doorway. And he throws what I assume to be his wife in the doorway. Thankfully, I had triggered discipline. I was looking through my scope. I did not fire any rounds. But after we got back to base, I reflect on that moment, and it was just so sad that that he would do that, probably with the idea of, oh, well, hopefully they'll shoot and kill my wife. I can go to the village elders who will make a big deal to the American troops that you know shot this poor innocent lady, and that will give you know fuel for hatred throughout that area, and it'll just do a lot of little different things to just make our job that much harder. And then we might not patrol for a day or so to appease the uh, village elders who kind of run everything. Then the Taliban can regroup, and there's probably a bunch of different objectives for doing that. But that was just hard for me to comprehend. And then another story I talk about in the book is there was a a kid, and he loved us. He would always salute us when we'd walk out of the base, him and his younger brother. You could tell that they longed for to wake up in a better life. And, uh, you know, not only at one point in the deployment did the kids ask me through an interpreter, is everywhere in America like Disney World? And can you really go into a room and turn a magical knob and have cold, fresh, clean drinking water come out of it. You know, not only did I hear that, but these kids, you know, saluting us, this kid loved us. One night, and this was a couple weeks after I had been injured on November 21st, 2010. So beginning of December, 
this story was told to me by my Marines who thankfully did not get injured and that were still there after I got medevac. But a grenade comes over the wall of our compound, middle of the night. Thankfully, the Marines that would have got injured or killed by it were out on night patrol. Don't know who it is. Uh, Fast forward a couple of nights, and that kid shows up at the gate of our base. He comes in the middle of the night because if you're caught not only communicating with the Americans, but if they find out you are helping us and telling us where IEDs are, passing information, I mean, you're as good as dead. You either flee to another village or city, but, I mean, your whole family is in jeopardy at that point. Kid comes in the middle of the night. He's hysterically crying, begging us not to hurt him if he tells us something. Of course, we would never, ever do that, no matter what he told us. He proceeds to tell us, and this kid, 12, at the very, very, very most, 13 years old. He tells us that because he was suspected of telling um, American troops where IEDs are, which he had told us where, I believe, two were during that deployment, Taliban came to his house in the middle of the night, jerked him out of bed, took him to the wall of our compound, put a grenade in his hand, pulled the pin, and gave him an ultimatum. Essentially, his life or ours, throw the grenade. And of course he did it, and thankfully he did it because he was an amazing kid. But that just shows you just the insane dynamics over there and what what we're working against. And not only that, but just how evil the Taliban are and how oppressed those people are. Yeah, you, you've mentioned that um, your injury a couple of times, so take me to that day. It was November 21st, 2010. Now, patrol base Beatley, where we had been living and operating for the four months up until that point, we had three villages to the south of our uh, patrol base. And just like the Eastern Village, the further south you went, the worse the fighting got. So we, my squad and I, got tasked with a mission to push down into one of these southern villages, take over a new compound, and hold it. Just establish a presence, put our foot in the ground, and try to survive, and don't give it up. Now, we're doing this because, at least at the time, Marines were deploying for seven months at a time. So we were over the halfway point in our deployment. And when you're looking ahead to that next unit coming in to relieve you so you can go home, their seven months starts, you want to leave your area of operation better than you found it. So looking ahead to getting relieved in that next unit coming in, the only thing we were doing was pushing south, taking over that compound to expand our area of operation. So when they take it over, it's a little bigger than we found it. And if you keep doing that, deployment to deployment and year to year, you know, 
hopefully and looking at it in textbook way, you're going to eventually keep just pushing out and making uh, everything more stable and safer. And so November 19th, we made the movement down there. And from the moment, you know, we took that compound over, it was a fight for survival. The first grenade attack came immediately, and we only had one squad down there with uh, a few Afghanistan National Army members attached to us because we were also training and operating with them throughout that deployment. Them, obviously, trying to make their own country better. Uh, the first grenade attack, we had two Marines injured and an Afghanistan National uh, Army soldier injured. So right there, down three bodies. The next day and a half, roughly, grenades, and the vast majority of the attacks were small arms fire, AK-47s. November 21st, the only thing I remember, besides physically how I felt after the grenade hit me, which I will get to, but up until the moment of detonation, the only thing I remember is around 7.45 that morning, we started getting attacked. Surprise, surprise, like every day, our alarm clock was AK-47 fire. I remember getting woken up by that, rolling over, unzipping my sleeping bag, and thinking, you know, here we go again, another day in Afghanistan. Fast forward to that afternoon. Myself and one fellow Marine, an amazing Marine, one of my best friends, we were on top of a roof, and we were on what we refer to being on post which most people would know as just a lookout position. We're on this elevated position. The rest of our Marines are in the compound. And anybody can Google Earth, Marja, if you kind of want to get a better um, picture, mental picture for what a compound is. But, you know, this roof we were on was just a small room and roof and walls built into the corner of this bigger compound. And the rest of the compound is just one big open courtyard where many family members, along with their farm animals, their crops that are drying out, all kind of in this compound. So the roof was really the only thing that we had to get on to stand that post and to look out those walls of safety not really, because we had been getting grenades lobbed at us, but you know what I mean. Because all of the Marines within the compound are eating, resting, cleaning their weapons, and they're obviously not vigilantly on watch. So me and Nick were on this roof, and we, you know, there's always a Marine on post, and we stand four hour shifts at a time. And we were. At towards the end of our four-hour shift, and I don't remember anything from the attack. Everything I'm about to say is from a 250-something page, two-year-long 
investigation done by the Marine Corps and Department of Defense. Eyewitness testimony, and uh, they brought a post-blast analysis team in to do forensics on my gear and everything like that, the roof. And so um, three grenades were thrown to initiate the attack. Two exploded within the compound. The third was a dud. And I don't remember any of any of the first three grenades, but the fourth one was thrown onto the roof in very close proximity to uh, me and Nick. Like I said, I don't remember anything. Uh, but from all of uh, that evidence and the eyewitness testimony, I covered the grenade for my fellow Marine that was up there with me. Like I said, I don't remember anything before, but after the grenade detonated, I couldn't see anything. My vision was like looking at a TV with no static, or uh, no connection. It was just white and gray static. My ears were ringing extremely loudly, just like they are at this very moment. And I was extremely disoriented. And my first thoughts were, Okay, I, I think I was in Afghanistan. Like, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was in Afghanistan. Like, something must have happened. So I tried to push myself up and kind of shake it off, which gave me the realization that I couldn't feel my arms. So that was another piece of the puzzle, which made me realize okay, wow, you know, this is not good. So I couldn't feel my arms. I kept trying to put the pieces together. I still couldn't, still couldn't. And that was interrupted by, and this will just allude to Marine's humor and how much we love each other. My next thought was, is someone pouring warm water all over me? I'm like, guys, in this messed up, banged up state I'm in. You're you're messing with me right now. But after a couple of seconds, uh, that sensation along with the other few pieces I had gave me the surreal and unfortunate realization that what I was feeling was not warm water, that it was blood and I was profusely from head to toe bleeding out. So uh, thankfully I was able to put those pieces together because it allowed me to take advantage of the last few seconds that I thought I was going to have on this earth. My first thought is, I was just so sad, and I felt so guilty and just upset that my family, and specifically my mom, how devastated they were going to be, and she was going to be, that I did not make it home. I said a quick prayer for forgiveness and anything I had done wrong in my life. And that was followed by uh, a tiredness that I can't even convey just to my core, just such exhaustion. So with that final moment of realization and knowing how I felt and the amount of blood that I had felt come out of me, I knew that, you know, this was it. And I closed my eyes and faded from consciousness for what I thought was going to be my last time on this earth. 
And I woke up almost five weeks later on the other side of the world with snow outside on my hospital window pane with my first sight um, was five Christmas stockings hanging on my hospital room wall at that military hospital in Washington, D.C. that my mom had hung on my wall, hopefully and lovingly preparing for me to wake up and have life again. And she had prepared my room for uh, the Christmas holiday. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you, in that five-week window, I mean, immediately that day, your team took you, got you, I guess, called back a helicopter also, who essentially came into heavy fire. Correct. Brought you back out, and then through a series of transfers and intense um, emergency medical work and teams of doctors, you land five weeks later in the hospital, and for the first time, open your eyes, and you're completely somewhere else and you see your mom when 
when that moment comes and you become, you regain consciousness, you said that you don't have any recollection really of what happened from like, you know, the roof from the moment um, the grenade went off until like and anything afterwards. But it, you know, there's a, a very detailed investigation. That moment though, so you wake up, you have no idea what actually happened, but you're looking around this room and you also, I'm guessing you have no idea where you are. You have no idea you're actually in Washington, no D.C. And I'm um, freaked out. Do you, no one's wearing white doctor coats. Everyone's in camouflage. Right. You know, being a young Marine that had never been on a combat deployment, um, you're so focused on the workup and, and what you're going to do. It's uh, you're just not educated that there's even a thing such as military medicine. You know, besides your corpsmen who give you ibuprofen, give you your shots and vaccinations you need, you know, check out injuries. You don't really think of some of the best doctors, surgeons, medical teams in the world, you know, being in the Army, Air Force. And so have you since that time spoken with Nick? Um, about what happened that day on the roof? Of course we've spoken, but, uh, you know, it's uh, hard and sad for me to see Nick injured as well, but it also gives me an opportunity in situations like this to tell people that, you know, not only are service members getting severely injured. But not everyone has scars from head to toe like me. There is a huge population that the wounds are just as bad, if not worse. But you know, they can be that bad and they can be life altering. And you might not have a scratch on you. Yeah. You know, the, the human brain is a very delicate, a very beautiful, but very delicate thing. And so, you know, the only part of my entire journey that I regret and that um, is very difficult for me is you know, wishing I could have. You know, even if it would have meant not waking up, wishing I could have taken the entire blast. But unfortunately, Nick was affected and not only affected, but seriously injured with a traumatic brain injury. Um, And with that, you know, the brain can heal in a few days, but it can also take a few years. It can also take a lifetime. But, uh, yeah, I uh, talk about this in the book, and one of, if not the happiest moment of my entire three-year recovery is a few weeks after I woke up, uh, Nick was a few rooms down from me in the hospital, and neither one of us could do really anything but lay there. But uh, we passed a whiteboard down the hall, back and forth to each other. And the first thing he ever said to me was, he uh, wrote on it, what's up, Kyle, and sent it down to me. So there's not a day go by uh, that I don't wish 
uh, he wouldn't have been injured. But, you know, trying to always look for the silver linings and things. And I think, you know, a little bit of, a lot of bit of conditioning through the hospital, you know, during those long, dark, hard, and painful nights, you know, being forced to search for silver linings. I'll just say that I'm I'm thankful that we're both still here and we both have a had and have a fighting chance at recovering and regaining our new 100% in the life that we have now. Yeah. When when you think back to that single action that you took um and again knowing that you can't you can't move yourself through that moment through your own memory because it's not there. Mm-hmm. But knowing who you are as an individual, knowing how you felt about your fellow Marines, knowing like in that moment, do you have a sense for what feeling, what emotion would have led you to take the action that you took? Well, not only was Nick a fellow Marine and going really going back to boot camp what i was talking about earlier to be told those just countless stories of courageous incredible just superhero level stories uh of marines that that came before us that coupled with the fact that nick was a fellow marine and, you know, we're taught to value and care about and take care of the Marine to the right and left of us just as much as ourselves and our own lives, if not more, going back to that greater purpose, that, that, that purpose that's bigger than any one individual, all of that. Also, Nick was and is, you know, a best friend. We went on every single patrol together. Even though he was more junior of a Marine than me, he came after we got back from that three-month deployment. So, you know, he was one of those that graduated SOI, and within a few months of graduating SOI, he was headed to Afghanistan. And so even though he was such a, and, you know, going into it, inexperienced junior Marine, just like all of us were, you know, he led point, walked point on every single patrol. The second we stepped out of friendly lines, Nick was out there. Just an incredible feel for direction for, okay, there's not, that many people out right now, kind of like a spidey sense tingling. And even though he's that junior Marine, never been on a combat patrol, all the combat veterans were behind him and trusted him to, you know, when you're walking point, all the guys behind you are kind of relying on you to spot that disturbed dirt that could be hiding a buried IED or spot those wires coming out of the wall that where a booby trap is set. So we're not only all trusting you kind of with our lives, but 
obviously, if you're walking point, especially in a combat environment that was that hostile at the time, you're obviously taking a much greater chance and risk of stepping on the IED first and before all of the Marines behind you. Um, you know, so with all of that said, we did everything together. We took care of each other like we all did over there. So I think the foundation and the molding I had as a Marine, along with the fact that I love Nick as a person and as a Marine, taking care of him, I believe, if I had to guess, would have been my last thought. Yeah. So as you find yourself waking up five weeks later and then have a long road to recovery, it takes another three years or so, 40, 41, somewhere around there, surgeries. Correct. Um, you realize you have been profoundly injured mm-hmm. um, physically. Lost your right eye. Your jaw was essentially blown off of your face and most of your teeth gone and damaged to your right arm. So it's a long, long recovery window for you. Just physically, let alone psychologically. Yes. And you commit to that. And, and like the fact that you're sitting you know, like here in this studio with me today is a testament to um, your, your willingness to, to wake up every day and go through some just incredibly brutal, hard-trying, emotional, physically and, and psychologically emotional times. You get to a point where you're sort of ready to step back into life. And, and you, had, you had made a promise, I guess, to your mom before leaving about college. Yeah, so I told my parents, and I very much meant it, but at the time, I think it was just to comfort all of the, not maybe, of course, uneasiness about me getting injured or be put in harm's way, but one of the things before you know, we sat down and they said, hey, we're on board. We wholeheartedly support you and we'll be here no matter what happens or whether you stay in four years or 20 years. But, you know, one of the things that they argued was, you know, why don't you go to college? You can go to any school. We'll send you on a trip around the world. You can do anything you want. And, you know, of course, I don't blame. I mean, it's very scary what I was contemplating doing. So I understood their arguments and I understood why they were presenting those. But with that said, I made sure that no matter what happened, if I survived my time in, that I would accomplish school and I would make that happen one day, whether it was four years from now or 20. I did want to make that promise to him and most importantly to myself. I knew that if I survived, and I didn't really think about it that way, but at the time I, I knew that I would go to school one day and that I would earn that degree and I would walk across that graduation stage when, who knows, you know, but I did state that and emphasize that and, um, wholeheartedly believe that deep down inside someday you know I would go back to school and now after graduating December of 2017 
I'm so thankful that I did that, that I kept that promise uh, to myself, and that after everything I've been through, that was by far the most proud moment for me. Yeah. When you, when you emerge from like this years of rehabilitation and recovery, 41 surgeries, working with the team of miracle workers for a bunch of years. Yeah. And you walk across the stage for graduation. Who else is joining you? I had staff from Walter Reed there, uh, fellow Marines, my family, of course, my grandmother, and just a few of the people, very important people, but just a few of the people that helped not only heal, love, and support me through all of those tough times and the great times, but just helped me get back to who I was and helped me get back to being at a point of knowing I was going to be okay, whatever stage of the journey that was, and just getting back to loving life and you know, from my doctors to my college professors who supported me and talked about me to the class at the end of every semester and read my citation and just so many. I couldn't have done it on my own. Uh, I just also can't say enough about how much and how many people just did just... I mean, think you will never be enough. I just can't even convey how many people not only stepped up, but truly gave of themselves to help me recover and find myself again. Yeah. So over the last five years or so, in addition to attending and graduating college, becoming a recipient of the Medal of Honor, President Obama, going out into the world and starting to contribute in a very different way um, and running a marathon. Three. <laughs> Three, marathons. Three, sorry. Don't want to shortchange you there. You know, as we sit here today, having this conversation, reflecting back on what you've been through, how it has shaped or changed you, and looking forward to sort of where you want to go if if I offer up this question in the context of this you know this is the good life project so if I offer up the phrase to live a good life what comes up for you well in the big picture of life that's what I want not only one of my final thoughts to be before I really leave this earth but also my legacy and what I want people to think and say about me that above all else and everything he encountered, he lived a good life and he tried to help people and tried to do good things. You know, going back a story that was the hardest part for me to write in the book before I woke up five weeks later, I briefly woke up right around the time of uh, critical brain surgery that I had. And through the disorientation, you know, machines breathing for me, a million tubes connected to me, 
I briefly wake up for, I believe, what was just hours. I mean, time was non-existent. In those few hours, it was the scariest few hours of my life because I think the medication combined with the disorientation of not only knowing where I was, not knowing what happened, not knowing who these people were around me, I had, I completely dove into and could not get out of a period of multiple, very intense, terrifying, I mean, they're, they're as real as me touching this table right here and sitting with you, hallucinations. And crazy stuff, I mean, crashing a plane in the Turner Field where I grew up going to Braves games and giant spiders and the Taliban attacking my hospital room. My dad, me in my crazy head and thoughts, thinking that my parents had sold our house, spent every penny they had, because again, we don't know about military medicine. So through all this craziness and disorientation, thinking that my parents sold their house, they can't feed my younger brothers because they've spent everything to for my health care. You know, my dad trying to get me this life-saving surgery storms the, the ICU and emergency room with a shotgun demanding that I get these surgeries. SWAT comes in, shoots him, and, and kills him right there in front of me. And it was so real. When he fell, I heard the shotgun clinking across the floor. But the worst hallucination and the one that still chokes me up, if I really you know, think about it, is uh, I'm standing on this hill. And I'm in the middle of this field. It's a massive field. And it's like the sky is gray and it's dark and just like very movie light. And there's only one tree in this entire field. And it's right behind me. And my feet are planted and I can't move. And I'm super confused. Like, what am I doing here? And I look way down in this field, down the hill from me. And there's a funeral going on. And the only one person there, as far as I can see, besides me, is the pastor or preacher standing at the open hole in the ground where this casket is. And my confusion just continues. I'm thinking like, first of all, what, you know, obviously a funeral's going on, but what's really going on? Because there's not even a headstone. No one's here. I was struggling, trying to put the pieces together, and finally I realized that I'm watching my own funeral. And no one is there, and no one has came. And uh, my buddies didn't come because they said that they were mad at me and they were disappointed in me that I left them early in Afghanistan. And... Uh, I just remember like standing there crying, watching my own funeral. And, you know, I think a little bit I was sad because I thought maybe I survived for a little while. I thought I was maybe waking up in the ICU and going to make it. But maybe this is what death is like. Maybe I'm really watching my own funeral, or maybe I'm really not on earth anymore. And that extremely tough and surreal hallucination 
know, when I finally woke up for real and I was more with it than not, and I knew kind of what was going on, uh, you know, that was a very difficult but impactful lesson. And it made me really think about, you know, what do I want to do with my precious time, my bonus round I have left on this earth? But really, when our days come, when my day comes, you know, before those final breaths, you know, it made me really think about and reflect what legacy do I want to leave? You know, what type of people and how many people do I want to care about me to where they come to my funeral? And what am I doing to impact and and make a difference on other people's lives? And so, you know, going on a little tangent, um, backtracking a little bit, but to live a life well lived is, I think, something that, you know, whether it's backpacking Europe, jumping out of a plane or running a marathon, or thinking about my entire life and the impact I want to make, I think just to live a life well lived is, you know, when I'm gone, I think that will be the best compliment that anyone could give me when they think about me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.